for everybody who's in government, they're probably five to 10 sitting in a Washington institution wishing they were in. So once again, I would urge people not to overlook the capital city of their state or the nearest big city and think about what can I do that will be working within government at a level where I can make a difference. Hello, this is Matthew Bishop with Books Driving Change. Today I'm talking with Anne-Marie Slaughter, author of Renewal, From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics. Anne-Marie is, uh, uh, has been a sort of big figure in uh, Washington and thought leadership in the past 20 years or so. And this book is, for me, yeah, a delight. It's um, both a story about how America and I guess because America in some ways is also a beacon for the world, you know, needs to go through a process of renewal to get itself out of its current dysfunctional moment. And also it's a story of personal renewal as a leader. And the way the two themes weave together, um, I think makes it a very rich book and one I'm looking forward to discussing uh, with Anne-Marie now. In a sentence, um, our audience is people who are interested in public service, particularly getting involved in building back better. Um, in a sense, why should they read your book? So Matthew, it's, it's wonderful to be in conversation with you. In a sentence, you should read Renewal because it will help drive your personal change, provide a guide to organizational change, and I hope will motivate national change. Great. And I think you end the book in, in a very powerful way with this uh, imagination of the world in 2026 when America celebrates its 250th anniversary of throwing the British out um, and <laughs> its formation as a nation. And, and, and I mean, the, the first striking point, and I think it obviously resonates throughout your book, is, you know, that the, the celebration in 2026 must be fundamentally different from the celebration that took place in uh, in 1976, which I vaguely remember, and 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 was as you say in the book, was an incredibly white uh, event, really celebrating a a, a, a white history, really. Um, and I mean, immediately it was striking how much we've already moved in the world and in America from that time. But what you set out is a is a beautiful vision, I think, of how the, how America could be in in five years' time. And I suppose the first thing I would ask is, are you in any sense optimistic that we can be there in five years' time? I do believe that we can use 2026 as a catalyst for reckoning, honoring, repair, and healing. And I, I use all four of those because I don't think it will work if it is just a, hey, we've been through our first 250 years and now here's a vision for the second. The reckoning part is critical to the process of renewal, but we are becoming a plurality nation, right? And in 2026, uh, by 2027, Americans under 30 will be a plurality. There will be no white majority. And of course, by sometime in the 2040s, that will be true of the entire country, and that will be true for our next quarter millennium. That fact tells you who are Americans, right? Who are the Americans who need to commemorate, to reckon, to repair, to honor, to heal? And there are a lot of things already going on across the country 
to retell histories. Obviously, the monuments we are the most prominent, the removal of mon- monuments, but there's much more going on than that. There's a recognition of our full history. There are, are huge debates about reparations and going on in lots of different places. But I also think there's a there are at least the beginnings of a different vision of a plurality nation, of a country that is just deeply diverse and connected to the world and a country that really could lead again in a very different way than we've led in the past. So I'm I'm working with a number of people who are traveling across the country who see a lot of this happening, but also a group of very diverse people who see this opportunity to say, who are we in 2026 and where have we been and where are we going? And I think, again, you touch on this at various points during the book, but I mean, what you're offering with the idea of renewal is the, is, is the possibility that a constitution, the nation formed on a constitution that was essentially uh, the product of white property owner, slave owner types, you know, could be owned by this extraordinarily plural group of people, many of whom, whose ancestors were you know, were people who were slaves or uh, victims in all sorts of other ways. Why have you opted for renewal rather than giving up on the American project altogether and thinking about something different entirely? (laughs) I say that renewal is in between restoration and reinvention, Uh, or you could think of in between reform and revolution, but it's it's a middle path. It starts with looking backward. And what the thing I like about the word is it's like a, the British would say a portmanteau word, right? It's got to, it's got re, so looking backwards and it new looking forward. And the two are deeply interconnected because I think personally, and I, I describe this in my own personal journey, but also organizationally or nationally, you have to be radically honest in facing your past and facing who you are. And that, that, who you are is shaped by your past to to accept it, not to try to justify it or, or you know, deny it, uh, but to accept it. And that on that basis, even when you can't fix it, because often a lot of the things that Americans have done to one another cannot be fixed, uh, but, but we can sit with them and we can recognize them and we can weave them into our story of ourselves. And then on that basis, you can envisage and achieve something new. And for me, the United States really has been about continually renewing a commitment to the ideals we proclaimed at our founding, but we're betraying right there. I mean, Thomas Jefferson embodies that contradiction as the author of the Declaration of Independence and someone whose life was made possible by some 300 enslaved people, including his own children. But those words are still there and they have actually inspired generations of Americans, people around the world. And so the renewal is a recognition that you can recommit to those ideals. You can accept how much they have been betrayed and how. I mean, you know, the United States is a country with both genocide and crimes against humanity in its past, uh, something that I was certainly never taught and was not breathed about in 1976. 
But on that basis, then I think you have a way for all Americans to feel like they are seen and heard and then to participate in this collective act of creation or recreation or renewal uh, that that I think is is something we can do as a country and we've done before. So you you talk a lot in the book about your own personal renewal as a as a leader but maybe more broadly than that can you just sort of tell our listeners a bit about that i can and i i tell it in part because it is an easier way to give on to these larger themes it's a way of of starting with a story which we many of us do but it's more than that I really did go through a very wrenching process of a crisis, a leadership crisis uh, that, that shook me uh, as a 59-year-old woman with a lot of success behind me. I nevertheless really had to take a hard look at who I was and what I'd done and to think about how to change. I, I think that's important for a number of reasons. One, just as if you are a leader, and I've heard from many leaders, both young women leaders and very established older white male leaders and many, many others, I think this is something that is very important to at least think about, maybe particularly now when many of our organizations are really being uh, shaken at the foundations by younger people who are saying, wait a minute, you know, there's white supremacy here. There's ingrained racism. It's not intentional, but it's there. And many of us have a hard time addressing it. But I also think it's it's important because I actually don't think we're going to have national change without individual change. In other words, it's a way of bringing home what needs to happen as a country, as an organization, and what that's going to demand of you. Now, if you are, let's say I'm an African-American woman who's been far less privileged or discriminated and had far more discriminated against, some of what I write won't apply to you because you are not uh, in the position of someone who needs necessarily to change as much as some of the folks who look like me do. But I think everyone can look in the mirror hard and see some things uh, that that are worth changing and think about what does it take to do that? Yeah, it's. Um, I'm very struck by how many social change leaders um, nowadays are talking about personal renewal, spirituality, which you touch on during yeah. the book. Um, you know, I think quite a few, you know, looking at psychedelics and things yes. in that sort of way as part of their personal renewal journey, which, again, you know, I think is both intriguing, but also you wonder whether they're just escaping and, and just how real these are and whether that is itself a privileged use of things that are called medicines to them and, and drugs when less privileged people get caught using them. But um, but it does seem like there is this recognition that inner change is is an essential part of, of broader renewal and transformation. What has your own process been? I mean, to what extent are you been on a spiritual quest or is it more, as as you describe it in the book, it's very much reaching out to almost everyone that you led and asking for their feedback in a very (laughs) candid way and and, and all people who mentored you and so forth. I mean, which I thought in itself was really, you know, very scientific way of kind of going out and just, you hope a thought leader would go out and actually do it in a thoughtful way like that. But what, what is, what has, has there been, have there been other things that you don't talk about in the book? I mean, how, how does it, how yeah. does it work? Yeah. So it's very interesting 
link you make with the spiritual, but also with the psychedelic. I do think that what is, what's common there is that these can be life-altering experiences, right? The, the conversion experience is one where you are filled with the awareness of a higher power or a higher being. And of course, psychedelics, although I'm not personally experienced, but the people I know who have done them and certainly reading Michael Pollan's most recent book, for people in particular who suffer from mental illness, it's a way of jolting yourself into another reality. And there again, that's what the kind of really big change that we need to make is going to require. I mean, for me, the journey did start with this advice from David Bradley, who used to be the publisher of The Atlantic, and he said, run toward the criticism. He said, you know, you, you can't bluff your way through this. You can't, you can apologize, but, but that's not enough. You need a learning journey. And the learning journey has to start from not just taking criticism, but asking for it. And I did, I went through, I went to my board members and others and I asked for what they really thought. I invited them to be radically candid. I didn't accept everything they said. I mean, I, A, I still have an ego and B, you know, people can criticize from many different places. And again, I would say this particularly to those who are often uh, you know, the subject of, of bias, but I heard enough so that instead of thinking of this crisis as just an incident, I saw it as part of a larger pattern. And that, that's where you get to who am I? Because if it's just one thing, you can justify it. If you look back and say, ah, you know, when I was dean at Princeton, I interpreted these events this way, but perhaps something else was actually going on. And perhaps that something else was because of something I was doing, because that same pattern happened later and they were different people. And that was, was a process of radical opening up. Uh, but actually also of becoming more secure. One of the things I tell people is that if you face your worst nightmares, if you, you're always worried about what other people are saying behind your back, well, get them to say it to your front. And sometimes it's not as bad as you think. And even if it is, you faced it. And then you accept, you know, and there's a spiritual dimension to this too, of course, our imperfections, our humanity, uh, our, uh, you know, constant, striving and constant falling short, which I think is really part of the human condition. So, and the spiritual part, and this is also part of the pandemic, because I did write a lot of this book during the pandemic, although I'd done a lot of thinking before, I became a passionate bird birder. Uh, and that to me, being out, you know, in a field somewhere, trying to track down this little speck of feathers, I'm kind of at one with something larger in a way that I've always responded to beauty that way, but it's more being outside myself. And I think that's one of the things I learned on the journey was, you know, good leadership, good people, good nations learn how to be outside of themselves. And as you were going through this sort of reflection and learning about how to, how to be a better leader, I mean, one of the things that comes through is your wrestling with, I guess what a lot of us are wrestling with who are white um, and privileged is what, yeah. what is white privilege and how do we, what, what do you do? How do you remain a leader, but also honor the fact that, you know, you are the beneficiary of, of privilege and in all sorts of different ways. And what does that oh, mean for a... the model of leadership going <laughs> forward that we're going to have? Yeah. 
it's a lesson I, I I learn and relearn because there there are just so many ways in which somebody like me who grew up in a world of many certainties, you know, that this was our history, that this is who we were, you know, you 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 learn to let go and to hear things that sound preposterous to you often at first go, as white supremacy did to many of us. I mean, for me, white supremacy really was the Ku Klux Klan. It certainly wasn't me. And then learning and listening. Um, but the other thing I do, and I write about it in the book, is I, I now share power. Uh, I had I was president and CEO of New America. And then in 2018, I split the job and took the woman who had been my executive vice president. I offered her the presidency and she was African-American and partnering with her day in and day out. And she's now moved on. But I have another president uh, and his experience, her experience are so different from mine in some ways, but like mine and others. So there's enough of a commonality. We're both at the top of this organization. We're both well-educated. Uh, we share a lot of similarities in lifestyle, but our life experience has been so dif- different so that they perceive a different organization than I do. And that because they're different people are talking to them to begin with. And that also means I hear things I would never hear. And I do think more of us have to find ways to do that, that For one thing, if we wait for all the white people to step down or retire, it's going to be forever (laughs) before the power structure shifts. So we can create much more room by just dividing jobs that are currently put together. But we also will learn in both directions, right? So, So people who haven't had leadership experience get it, but those of us who had that's the best way to learn how to read, uh, lead differently. And one of the things I've been struck by, almost none of my friends have people of color in their intimate circle in the sense of, of working with somebody day in, day out really closely or as friends. And that's a kind of social segregation, even when it, that even transcends class. Yeah. And it was, um, I was also very sort of struck by your, quite amusing description of how the rugged individualists of the transcendentalist <laughs> movement, you know, the Thoreau and Walden Pond and Emerson and so forth, and how they were actually sort of rather coddled by their wives and so forth, and which made their individualism possible, and, and, and how that you then built off that to, to sort of talk about really, you know, the, the, the community and recognising how we're all the sum of... Uh, community in a way um you know how that needs to be embedded in this notion of how renewal is going to happen here in america and also what sort of leadership models really should be adopted going forward do you feel that there is a a generation of leaders coming through that think differently and behave differently i mean from what you're saying there there is still this sort of self uh, sorting around you know, keeping yourself in your silo with people similar to you, and there isn't that real embrace of diversity, despite all you know, twenty plus years of talking about it in management schools and so forth. Well, I do, I do think things are changing. I was just reading a book on Gen Z uh, that was put together by a number of different professors, so it's cross disciplinary, and it really is striking that they are the first generation to have grown up entirely digital. Right, so that they just don't know a pre-digital world and how that affects their sense of reality, their sense of identity, 
there really are differences and they are able to connect to people very different from themselves in some ways, but the same in others. So let's say you're gay and you, you know, would have been restricted to your high school when I was growing up, but probably no one else that you knew, or maybe a very few people now online, no matter where you are, you can find groups and those groups may well be more racially or ethnically uh, mixed. So I think there are, there are real differences. I think above all, they think much more horizontally. And I write about horizontal leadership, about leading from the center and the edge. I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but at least my experience of leadership says total horizontality is a disaster. I mean, you know, leading by consensus means the person wins who can sit there the longest or be the loudest, and that you do need hierarchy, at least some hierarchy. But I also believe that you can you can move back and forth. You can be a hierarchy and then be flattened into more of a, a web and then go back to a hierarchy. And I, I think there our younger people uh, are are demonstrating a kind of multiplicity or a both and way of way of thinking. And that's what I write about when I talk about rugged interdependence. It's not that rugged individualism isn't a a sizable piece of American history. It's just that it's only one strand. And when you tell the stories of the women or you tell the stories of the African-Americans who were moving from South to North during the 19th century with the Underground Railroad, which is a strong solidaristic tradition, that tempers this narrative of the you know pioneer going forth to conquer the frontier. Uh, so it's both and, and I do think that many of the of the younger folks are much more skilled at that more flexible thinking. You touch on the issue of wokeness uh, in the mm. book as well, and uh, you know I guess one of the again big themes at the moment is how both extri- both on both sides or both ends of the political spectrum things appear to be getting much more extreme and entrenched. I mean, how, on the progressive side, I mean, how big a concern is, is wokeness? So I, wor- I worry that the term wokeness is just the latest iteration of political correctness, which is, you know, the ways in which many conservatives demonize liberalism of any stripe, pretty much. Uh, and so I, I bristle when I hear wokeness uh, and I actually describe my own process of what I do think was a kind of awakening. And I talk about how when you're birding, you you start to see and hear the world radically differently. I mean, you're just constantly alert to a flash of feathers. You hear things differently. And that once you've been awakened to the experience of many others, and this for me started as a woman in a man's world, but now I'm a white person in a world of, uh, of, of many different races, and I've had to, to, to learn that. I do experience the world differently. Where I think we go wrong is a just a militant demand for purity uh, on, on the left. It's interesting. Jonathan Haidt says that purity is one of those values of conservatives, but you and I are old enough to at least have learned about and lived through communism, Maoism, you know, the kind of doctrines on the left where if you're not with us, you're dead. 
And that is not liberalism. That is not a view that allows for a plurality of views. And I'm no relativist. I'm a, you know, a sort of universalist liberal, but I this idea that you can't speak or counter or that if you deviate from a from a, a line, there's a deep American strand there from the Puritans forward, but that worries me. But I'd rather call it you know, militancy or puritanism rather than wokeness. Now, you talk in your your vision of 2026 about one of the things you, you mentioned that will be happening in 2026 is that a Truth and Reconciliation Commission will be wrapping up its final report. What would that commission be about? And what, what would it be, how would it be handling, would it be handling the some of these issues that are dividing America at the moment? I I would hope so. And, I, and mm. so, again, for, for listeners, my... The final chapter is a coda, and it's set in 2026 and sort of imagining, and what I do, I imagine that this commission was named in 2021 by President Biden. That obviously has not happened. It could still happen. I do think it's important to have national recognition of the multiplicity of stories and of wrongs. And done right that commission would certainly focus on the enslaved Americans and descendants of enslaved Americans who really did, were treated the worst and started with the least and have been systematically discriminated against the most. But many other Americans, including white Americans who were Irish, for instance, or, or from other countries that were seen as inferior, subhuman by other white people, those stories would come out as well. And I think this idea of simply saying, hey, we have a lot to face and a lot to reconcile with would be very valuable. And I think it should be separate from the question of reparations, because in some sense, just the, the truth right, is, is a way of, of repairing at least the suppression of, of true stories. Uh, and that that in itself would be valuable. It would be different than the South African one uh, or what happened in Germany after the war. It would be distinctively American, but I think many countries could could use something like that. No, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good idea. What do you, of all the things that you set out as happening, hopefully, in, by 2026, which do you think is the most urgent that we get to grips with as if America is to get on this path of renewal? Mm. Well, there's the symbolic and then there's the policy. So symbolically, the one that I hold in my heart is this idea that the Obama Foundation and the George W. Bush Foundation would come together, create a commission of people across the spectrum who would identify 56 additional founders to match the 56 people who signed the Declaration of Independence. I think that for our next quarter millennium to say, hey, we were founded by many people in these 250 years would be very important. And this will be or, the topic of the Lynn Manuel musical that you yes exactly proposing as exactly well. <laughs> yeah that's exactly right I put and and I say that he would write a, a musical called 2026 and it could be about all of our founders the thing though I also talk about a lot of different policy changes that we haven't gotten to and the one I would most like to see is that by 2026 25 or 26 states of the United States would have adopted ranked choice voting open primaries final five essentially a multi-party system, uh, the, a system that could get you to something that looked more like a parliament, but without constitutional amendment, by breaking the stranglehold that 
the Democratic Party and the Republican Party now have on our politics. And as those parties get more extreme, there's just a vast number of Americans who are not represented and who are are feeling increasingly hopeless about our future because we don't feel like we can make the change so many of us need. So I, there's nothing in the constitution about only two parties. There's nothing about a first past the post electoral system. So there are lots of people working to put ranked choice voting on the ballot. And I hope to see 25 or 26 states at a tipping point by 2026. And from there, we would change our national elections as well. This brings me to a sort of final point that's very dear to the heart of driving change, which is sort of the idea of how do we encourage more people to get involved in public service and in particular into government. And and you yourself in the book talk about how the current political system put you off ever considering running for office. Um, But I mean, but there's a general crisis, it seems to me, in terms of getting people with talent to commit to going into government, either as running for election or or actually serving in the civil service in different ways. And obviously, there's more people who want to, when they do want to do public service, they want to do it through the private sector, through nonprofits or, or even right. business. And what do we what do we do about that? Because that's clearly key to a key part of the renewal that, that needs to happen is to get people as they did after, you know, in, in the first progressive era, they you know, lots of people turned from business to get into government and, and service. Indeed. And I think if I were in my 30s, say, not my 60s, I would think about running for office even in the current system. But I would do it and I would encourage other people to do it, my mentees, uh, younger people in my lives, to run for office at the level where you really have a realistic chance of making and seeing change, which for many people is at the local level, at the city level. Uh, and it's remarkable how many kids are running for mayor uh, or state legislature. Uh, and But you need to start at a place where you can actually see what difference you can make and you can see what it is to rally others around uh, supporting a particular platform. At the same time, as I said, I think you need to be working to change the political system. But there are a number of really areas where, where we need big change. The environment, obviously, education needs overhauling from start to finish so you can run for your school board uh, and you know stand up to those who would bully the, the folks on the school board. But I think... Uh, To make change, you do have to be in the arena. And I I say that I did serve my two years in government, but I I left academia because at least I thought New America was a way of of making more change than I could do only by speaking and writing. But I think it's, it's to keep trying until you find a lever that when you know you pulled it, something happened. And that will stick with you because the satisfaction of having done that is it just just multiplies and then you can also inspire others that are we have a cancer of cynicism and hopelessness because of the sense that no matter what we do nothing really changes and what what of working in government as a professional as opposed to an elected politician absolutely although i think <laughs> I mean, yes, absolutely. And I would say right now, there are a lot of people in the White House, on Capitol Hill, in the executive, uh, in the Biden administration, who are working really hard on major legislation, which 
is not as much as people wanted, but if it gets through, will be transformative. I think, so I, I totally recommend that. It's just those jobs are very hard to get. And they're, for everybody who's in government, they're probably five to 10 sitting in a Washington institution wishing they were in. So once again, I would urge people not to overlook the capital city of their state or the nearest big city and think about what can I do that will be working within government at a level where I can make a difference. And you know, over a lifetime, I, I do believe you should go in and out. I think being in a nonprofit and being in the private sector are invaluable sort of cultural experiences where you gain cultural capital and contacts. Uh, but do go into government soon enough so you're not scared, so you know what it's about, and that you make the contacts so that you can go in again if you want to. Great. Well, on that positive note, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, Amory Slaughter, I thank you very much. Uh, renewal from crisis to transformation in our lives, work, and politics is a, is a really inspiring book with uh, lots of great uh, ideas in it. And um, hopefully more than a few of them will uh, find their way from the pages into, into, into the real world. So thank you for <laughs> talking with Books Driving Change. Matthew, it's always a pleasure. And truly what I want more than anything is for renewal to be much more than a book. This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org and follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.